City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. And I'm Doug Leeds, President. We welcome you to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. Every one of these programs covers a special topic in the art of theatre. Funding from the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation have allowed us to expand these forums. We want to thank them for their wonderful support. The Wing, with our partners, the League of American Theatres and Producers, is perhaps best known as the presenter of the Tony Awards, which recognize excellence on Broadway. However, the majority of our resources are devoted to educational programs to help young people enter the theatre as a profession. And these seminars are just a small part of that. Each year we give scholarships to students and grants to New York not-for-profit theatres. In addition, we produce a weekly talk show on XM Satellite Radio called Downstage Center that is broadcast coast to coast. And our newest programs, Springboard NYC and the Theater Intern Group provide educational and career development opportunities for people interested in a career in the theater. All our educational and media programs, including these seminars, are available free on demand from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. We thank you for joining us. So without further ado, let's go learn more about working in the theater with today's distinguished panel featuring leaders of the off-Broadway community and our moderator, Thomas Cott. Thank you, Sandra and Doug. Um, our panels usually talk about Broadway, but today we're talking about off-Broadway, which is in many ways a much more influential producer of new plays and musicals. For example, last year's Tony winners for Best Play and Best Musical came from Off-Broadway, I Am My Own Wife and Avenue Q, and eight of the last nine Pulitzer Prize winners for drama started Off-Broadway. Um, about six million people see uh, shows Off-Broadway each year, and there are more than, uh, well, there are about 400 theaters uh, which are considered Off or Off-Broadway. Off and uh, we're here today joined by a panel of five leaders from uh, among those many hundreds of theaters, and also the head of the service organization that serves all these different companies. Uh, starting on my far right is Virginia Lulubis, executive director of Art New York, the Alliance of Resident Theaters, which is the service organization for 400 nonprofit theaters off-Broadway. Eduardo Machado is the author of 27 plays, and last July became artistic director of Intar Theater, the oldest Latino theater company in the U.S. producing in English. Next to him is Loretta Greco, veteran director, and last May she became producing artistic director of the 26-year-old company Women's Project. On my left, I have Tisa Chang, the founder and producing artistic director of Pan-Asian Repertory, which is the city's premier Asian-American theater. 
Next to her, James Nicola, the longtime artistic director of New York Theatre Workshop, a premier incubator of important new plays and innovative adaptations of classic works. And on the far left, Neil Pepe, who is the also longtime artistic director of Atlantic Theatre Company, which uh, began 20 years ago with a core ensemble of actors, writers, and directors. Please welcome our panel. Now, because uh, our panel is mostly uh, artistic directors, we're going to talk a lot about creative matters today, but we also need to talk about the business side, and so I'd like to start with Ginny, and uh, in your unique position at Art New York, maybe you can talk about some of the challenges that are facing Off-Broadway right now. You know, um, it was about 30 years ago that I heard Thomas Hoving, who was then the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, say that when crisis isn't a buzzword in the arts, nothing is happening. Um, well, he would certainly think that there's a lot happening off-Broadway, and there is a lot happening off-Broadway, and I've seen some of the finest work I've seen, but we certainly are facing some of the biggest challenges I think this community has ever faced. Um, certainly funding has not recovered from the recession, and we've had the double uh, difficulties of a post-9-11 economy and challenges. Real estate costs are going up as our revenues are going down. Audience attendance has shifted from a planned event to a spur-of-the-moment event, which makes it very difficult for producers to decide how long they can run a play or whether they need to rush out and fill the house. Um, sometimes, surprisingly, 50 people show up at the box office that night unexpectedly. So I think lifestyles have changed. I think that's a big issue. Um, behind the scenes, I think the other issues are that we're being challenged by uh, accounting rules. You know, something happens on a corporate level at Enron, and then suddenly they look at these little nonprofits and, and double check our books. I think we're over scrutinized. And I think there's a leadership issue that um, permeates this country. And I think it affects our boards of directors as well. I think many of us have boards that have been on. That, have, that know how to run an organization or oversee an organization in good times. Running an organization in bad times is a difficult thing to do. And if we look at the leadership of our country right now and the leadership of the corporations, it's no surprise that we would have leadership issues on every level. So I think those are the top issues that we see at Art New York, at least, that we try to deal with. Well, to our artistic leaders here, um, how much do the financial and other concerns that Jenny raised here uh, affect the kinds of choices that you're making as programmers and producers of things? I mean, Neil or Jim, are you finding uh, that you're changing the way that you're picking your seasons because of this? That, Jim, you want to start, maybe? Sure. <clears throat> uh, yes, we, we um, have had to make a major adjustment in our um, selection of um, the, the work that we produce, although that's only one part of our work. Um, <clears throat> for the most part, we have proceeded over the years by uh, first deciding these are the range of projects that we'd like to produce and then put those together and then come up with a budget and then figure out how to fund it. Now we're starting with this is what we think we have for funding mm -hmm. and then what are the projects that are going to fit into that. Um, and I'm finding myself more and more in a position of having to say no to artists that are near and dear and... Um, you know, with lengthy relationships uh, and collaborations. And um, <clears throat> I never thought I'd have to be in the position of being creative about how to say no. Hmm. It's just not mm -hmm. something that ever crossed my mind. Is that the same thing for you, Neil? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a new thing. I mean, I don't know that it's all necessarily a negative because it forces you to think very specifically about the kind of programming you do. Yeah. But the hard part about it is you always want to be encouraging to younger artists, and there's a little bit of uh, an event-oriented 
planning thing going on. And what I mean by yeah. that is you want to know that one show you have per year will be somewhat of an event, RE, people will buy a lot of tickets to it. Whether it's a controversial show, something you think you're taking risks on, or it's a more straight ahead show and you think it's more accessible, therefore more people will come. It's that balancing act. And again, sometimes, I don't think it necessarily means that we would lean towards less risky work. It just means you have to think very specifically about the balance between what you program and where you're going to come out at the end of the year business-wise and finance-wise. Because two bad years and you're looking at uh, you know, not being able to continue as an organization. So you really have to mm -hmm. balance the two. Let's talk a little bit about how, uh, what, what, what dollars we're talking about here. I mean, for example, on Broadway we hear millions and millions of dollars being thrown about for one production. But what is a typical production cost at one of your theaters? I mean, can you... Uh, one? Uh, my theater around $150,000. You do a play for $150,000? Yeah. And that's really cutting the line, you know, that's really about uh, advertising money, really, you know, hoping that people will do stories, getting great press people like Richard Kornberg to work for you. Um, and uh, so it's just really just making it. Um, so, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but why does it cost you so much less than it does, say, on Broadway? I have a different uh, deal with equity. Uh, I don't have full-page ads in the New York Times. Um, mm -hmm. I think those are the reasons, yeah. you know. Um, does it take some, some pressure off of you to be always... Oh, no, because $150,000 for my theater is the same as $5 million for the Schubert. So, uh, so the pressure is always on. Um, and I think we have a double double trouble or double gain, which is we're nonprofit theaters, which means we have to represent the people that we're being nonprofit for, both in what we pick and in having a ticket price so that or so an audience can really come in, you know. A lot of the people that I would like to see in my theater really can barely afford a ten dollar ticket. So I think it's a double edged sword for us in trying to figure out what to do because we have a a public duty that we also have to provide because we're not for profit. So I think it's tough decisions all, all the way around. You know, representing everybody you're supposed to represent and getting your audience to be able to come to see your show. Is the same thing true for you? This has been a really tricky time, and I think that Eduardo and I probably share some of similar stories in that we're taking over from a founder organization, and so growth and change and forward movement is imperative. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've inherited a place where the average production budget was about $70,000. So <laughs> this year, the average is 200000 which about 25000 of that is for marketing. And it's been... Um, vital to me that what our mission about is inherent on the stage and um, but it is so tricky trying to figure out who is coming when and what Ginny is talking about people who don't want memberships don't want subscriptions and what I've also found is that we want an economically diverse audience as well and we have all kinds of ten dollar twenty dollar you know pay what you can kind of things but I also have found that everybody in the industry waits because they know they can get a free ticket. And I think it's a huge challenge for us. We're trying to look at the whole comp scenario and how to, how to somehow <laughs> find a kind of solidarity because people know that if they wait long enough, they can get a free ticket. And we're looking at 
Jane Ann Crum and I, um, my partner in crime, you know, we looked at very modest revenue forecasts, 50% of each house we thought would be full with a reduced price ticket. And we're doing about 40% of that. So it's devastating when the work on the stage, you're, you're proud of it and you're getting a kind of critical response. And then you just don't know when people are going to come or if they're going to come. It's difficult. Tisa, now you started your company in um, 1977, I believe. And I'm curious to know if, if you've noticed a, a big shift from the days when you started to, to now. Well, a Pan-Asian rep uh, specializes on Asian-themed um, plays, as you know, and musicals um, which illuminate universal truths. So we have always had a very um, active exchange with international artists and, and with Asian playwrights uh, whom we, we bring here. Um, and it has really gotten very difficult now um, of course, not only escalating costs, you know, but, but the world situation, the international situation uh, at large and how America is perceived. We, we, we do quite a bit of um, international touring at international festivals. And uh, representing the United States, we were in Cuba, Havana, Cuba, um, with Rashomon a couple of years ago. And I, I think that that... Um, it, it representing American art, the diversity of American artists. Um, I think that kind of activity, and, uh, and certainly in New York, we don't own our own facilities. I think that um, most of my colleagues here have their own facility, and that's always been a difficult uh, uh, challenge. Uh, we are now um, on the Upper West Side of the West End Theater, and we've been there for the last few years. Um, having been booted out of <laughs> St. Clement's after 15 years. So that's, that's been a very serious issue uh, for us. But in terms of the artistic work that we've always, um, that we're best known for, which are the large historic epic plays, Shogun Macbeth, Cambodia Agonistes, which um, centered on the uh, Cambodian uh, Khmer Rouge years in the 70s and incorporated traditional Cambodian dance as well as 15 new songs. So that was another thing, uh, uh, Eduardo. You know, that's like the very rock bottom minimum budget, 150, because at the minute you do musicals, and I know Intar has done <coughs> musicals, and you bring in, I mean, there's musicians, and you've got dancers, and there's choreography, and then we've got these historic uh, costuming. It just becomes very challenging, but it's so exciting, right? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's so colorful, it's so evocative, and, and we think that that would bring in droves of people, but I think in New York, another problem is truly now is that we have so many choices. Yeah. I mean, people's, um, the, 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 the competition for your leisure hours, for your, for your leisure dollars, right. um, you, you mentioned reality shows uh, before, somebody, I think, so I think for the performing arts, we who have stayed and remain steadfast and sacrificed to stay in the American theater, the living stage, and Pan Asians now, what, 28, this is our 28th season. It's a real struggle, it's a real, but it's a test of our commitment, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think, just to pick up on what you said, Tisa, I think we have a very um, saturated market 
so to speak, just in yeah. theater. And then we're in a city where there's also wonderful opera, wonderful dance, wonderful music. And so the consumer has so many things to choose from, but the consumer himself or herself is finding that they're losing their job or they're being downsized. I mean, how many banks in the city have merged? How many people have lost their jobs? And it's becoming closer and closer to home. It's no longer just people I read about in the paper. It's people I know. It's people in my family. And I think that's one of the things that you're feeling at the box office. And so in the 90s, when we could raise our prices to make up for the lack of revenue that we were getting from institutional sources, you know, when funding was cut, you could raise it at the box office. Now what we're seeing is that funding is cut and you can't raise it at the box office. And I think one of the things that our, we did a market research study last year that uh, surveyed a number of theaters was in, incredibly comprehensive. And one of the things that we learned was that people were not going less but there's so much more to go to that they were going to more theaters. And then I think there is the commitment issue because our lives have become so much more complicated. You know, I think all of us are working harder. All of us are trying to do more with less. And at the end of the day, I would love to go to the theater, but I have obligations that draw me somewhere else. And it is, and I think the other thing that's weird is that television has taken the best of theater and they've created reality shows. So theater, which isn't reality, suddenly, you know, it's sort of weird. Theater used to be kitchen sink drama, and that was reality. And then the producers on television said, well, let's go into those kitchens. Let's go into those homes. Let's put a camera there and see what goes on. So now the theater that I think is most attractive to the consumer is the super real theater, the theater where you've got an epic theme, the theater where you've got something that really hits them at the heart, whether it was homebody cobble because it was so timely, uh, whether it was the powerful um, experience that I had watching Nulaja's son just talk about herself and, and feeling like I could relate to it, or whether it was an, uh, a modern version of The Winter's Tale that actually sent me home in tears because it was about redemption, or whether it's the Woody Allen memory play that makes you think about, oh my God, all those dreams that we had as kids. And then suddenly you're middle-aged and you're faced with, I never accomplished any of that. And, but I'm, I'm, you know, so I think we're asking all the right questions and I think <clears> we're producing wonderful work, but the competition is just so great. I'm curious if you find that the artists that you work with are coming up with different or responding to what Jenny's talking about differently, so that the plays and scripts that you're being submitted are different now because of that. Are they I know that I don't write plays of eight people anymore. And, yeah, uh, and I used to write plays of eight people. What's that's, your that's limit now? I write plays of five people now. And I, don't, you know, and I don't even consciously think about it. But I have noticed that the last five plays that I wrote have five people in it. You know, and, I don't know, you know, and I don't know why. But I, but I think a lot of it is because I know that a play with eight people in it, I know that six is when you cross the line. You know? hmm. And uh, so I think instinctively I knew that as a writer. And um, can you remember when you had that, like when you stopped writing for eight people? I wrote a play for 13 people that I could only, you saw it, that I could only do a theater for the new city. And we got a grant and we did it because they have a special deal. And I loved it. And then from then on, I never wrote a play with a lot of people again. So never on <coughs> meaning 1997. Wow. You know, uh, and, and I do notice that and I wonder why, because I don't tell myself write a play for five people, but that's what I've been doing, mm -hmm. you know. Um, how many people are in your current play? I mean, uh, seven. Seven. Yeah. Is that typical for you guys? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's a funny thing because I think that's true. It's it's harder. You get you get submitted a play, and you see that there's 15 people, and you you just check yourself for a second. But um, 
It hasn't, in our case, it hasn't necessarily, and I think in your case, you've done some fairly large mm -hmm. cast plays as well. It doesn't, I, I always feel good work is good work. We did a, this play, The Cider House Rules, a few years back, and, and that was 23 people. And for, a, for a, a show that size in our theater is difficult. Now, that show sold a lot of tickets for us, and that was fantastic. Um, we came close to breaking even on it. Um, but it really <laughs> depends on the work. It, it, it's, uh, it really depends on the piece. So it's hard in commercial, in the commercial world, I think they'll just f forget it. You know, it's just way, way too big. But it's an odd thing at our level. We're on, a, we're on a contract called a letter of agreement contract with equity, which I'm sort of embarrassed about because it doesn't pay much to the actors at all. But the reason that we're on it is so that when we have, you know, because it's what we can afford, number one, and also that hopefully when we get a play that has 15, we're going to do the Cherry Orchard this spring, and that has 15 people in it. And so hopefully we can do that and afford it. Um, and presumably the reason that actors do this is because it's a limited run and yeah. they get to do things they wouldn't otherwise get to do. Yeah, well, which is a, a whole other discussion about getting actors to commit to a certain amount of time. But I have to say that the odd thing, having been on the other side to, until July, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the odd thing that um, writers talk about all the time is there's enough money to do Shakespeare, but there's never really hardly ever enough money to do an, uh, a play by a new American playwright with lots of people in it anywhere. And you I know, whether it's I good or not. You know? I think that has a lot to do with the familiarity um, sure. of, of, of the playwright, of the writer, and so <coughs> there's a, just, we, producers have to work a little harder to market and communicate new work. Right. But ab you're absolutely right, there's no excuse. <laughs> That, right. I sort of feel guilty that we're talking about money so much because we're not-for-profit theaters. Yeah. And I think maybe the thing that you implied that I think we need to kind of clearly state is that our value of success and how we define success isn't just did we break even at the box right. office. We're sort of forced that way because of the economics and the fact that we pay people and we want to continue to meet payroll and pay ourselves and, and continue. And it's this balance that I think is very hard for the not-for-profit producers. And at the same time, I think you define success, each of us probably would define success for our organizations somewhat differently. You know, Loretta said, we raise the budget, we want to we wanna push the edge of the envelope. Um, and yet you have to make sure that that envelope has some money in it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I mean, you asked a question about how can we do this for this little, for 150, for 200, for 400, whatever it is. And it's about human resources, too, at our level. I mean, it is about our contracts, and it is about the extraordinary spirit of these artists that right. come yeah. and give all that they can for $400 a week. And it's about our production people who are making it look like a million dollars when it's, you know, 50 cents. I, I decided to become the artistic director of INTAR, it was not something that I wanted because I did a play there. And uh, doing the play there with very little money uh, was the experience of my life because it was everything I ever wanted a play to be. And the audience response was everything I ever wanted an audience to be. It was people from everywhere coming to see my play and they told each other about it because we did not have money to advertise. And I thought, well, God, a place like this has to survive. So I've got to figure out a way to get it to survive because it's the best experience I've ever had, you know.
And all our contracts actually pay pension and health, which is a real big boon for unemployment. So, I mean, we really protect the actors in, yeah. in that way. But I think that, you know, our theaters also represent the diversity in the city mm -hmm. um, in terms of choices and in terms of the kind of work that can be seen and, um, and, and, and the kind of artists that we can attract and that utilize. Pan-Asian has always had a senior artist resident, resident ensemble. So we're very, very close to many of our veteran artists who have grown with the company for 15, 20 years, and they now teach or write. I mean, we, they, they grow and expand their skills. So I feel that that is an extraordinary relationship and a boon that we're, we're providing. And that is such an opportunity for, for uh, growth for them as, uh, as artists. Um, I would hope that we exist and we continue to exist for all the right reasons. Yeah. I, mean, but I think that's right. I think that's right. And despite all this talk about money, I do believe that everybody here puts the art first. I really do. And I think in terms of uh, what Ginny was saying about articulating the difference between not-for-profit and for-profit or the movie business is it is our final goal is not always, oh, it's got to meet the bottom line budget-wise and all that stuff. I think our final goal is about the work, the artists, supporting the artists, telling great stories, and we'll do whatever we can on our end to be responsible about how we get the money to them and surviving. But it's been refreshing to me after 14 years being an artistic director to realize that I'm coming to work just with the sole goal of telling great stories and that everything that I do, fundraising, marketing, is about supporting that story as opposed to, oh my God, is it going to bring in 18 million its opening weekend? Because I don't care, if there's, there's many shows that we go into knowing, you know what, there's a good possibility, the critics won't like it. And there's a good possibility some audience members might like it. But if I can stand there during previews, before the critics come, and say, not only do I believe in the, in the story of the show, but I believe in how we produced it, <clears throat> then I'm happy. And I think the organization should be happy, too. But there's nothing wrong with an artistic success that has a longer life. I mean, you've had a show that moved to Broadway. You've had several shows that moved to Broadway. Is that a goal of yours, to have <coughs> a larger well, you, audience? You touch on a very important <laughs> question, I yeah, think, facing... Yeah the not-for-profit theater in New York, because we, we exist, um, I think, um, our existence poses the idea that theater is an art form. And um, I think we all try to stay committed to that. Mm -hmm. However, <clears throat> there is this very significant commercial theater here, which is, which is whose roots are in um, amusement and entertainment. Right. And even, I would say, more deeply than that, uh, in our tr uh, American Puritan past, um, <laughs> <clears throat> to frequent a theater was to transgress, to sin, and that mm. added to the pleasure of it. <laughs> Which we're trying to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so we stand, and the, the idea that theater is not an amusement, but is actually um, a form to uh, explore your essential humanity, mm. that is a part of a, an. an uh, should be an essential element of a community as a library, as a museum, uh, as the town hall, as a school, as a hospital, uh, is a relatively new idea. And I feel um, that the pressures on the artists, mostly I feel this, on the artists, to try and find a, a viable economic life infiltrates their, li their creative lives 
uh, unsuspectingly and starts shaping the projects to go down a certain pathway and not even know it. I mean, it's one thing to do it and know that that's what you're doing. Right. Mm. <clears throat> but, and, and, and I fight this battle all the time with artists about let's not get ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, let's find out what this is going to be and it will find its own life. And I find that is, in, that's probably the most mm. um, difficult thing for me right now, I feel, is to, is to keep the artists focused on that. What, what, what the goal is, the yeah. ultimate goal. Well, or, or, or let go of that, you know, that what you want to do now is get this draft written and solve these particular problems, um, where uh, at the same time they're doing that, there's an agent whispering their ear about, oh, we should go out looking for a commercial enhancement for this project because when, you know, it'll move to... Blah, blah, blah. All of that then starts to say, well, it has to look a certain way and has certain things can't be in and other things have to be out and... Uh, mm -mm. Uh, and I'm t that's my mission at the moment. I'm very committed to that, is that, that we, we must keep in the forefront that this is an art form. Right. And um, I think, our, uh, at least at New York Theatre Workshop, in general I would say the things that have um, found commercial success beyond our building have been things that didn't know where they were going. They didn't want to be a Broadway musical. They became a Broadway musical, but they came, became that unsuspectingly and in their own terms. But Jim, you're still getting some, uh, you're, you're benefiting from rent, sure. uh, you're still. Well. So that's a wonderful boon. Yeah. That's, those are always good things. But, but you know, I, I, I teach all these students, uh, you know, at Columbia University who want a career. And it, 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 it I'm in shock. You know, because I started writing plays because I was going to go insane. So I had to start <laughs> writing plays in order to save myself. <laughs> so uh, that's the only reason I started writing plays. The first time Frank Rich reviewed me, I had no idea who he was. And that's the <laughs> truth. I had no idea who he was. And people came running up to me and said it was good. And I went, oh, I'm from L.A. Theater. doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so... So to, w and I think there was a careerist attitude, I know when it happened, it happened around 1991, where people thought there was a career track in the theater, which is insane. There is no career track in the <laughs> theater. You get lucky or you don't. And if you get lucky and something happens to be good, God bless you, make as much money as you can. And it has nothing to do, you know, with Broadway, it has, you know, it has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with expressing yourself and it's very hard to communicate that to people. Uh, who are, who are, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way that universities have set up programs and stuff. And it's very hard to communicate to people that it's just an art form, and the fun part is doing it. Everything else is the bullshit, you know. And uh, sorry, and um, <laughs> and you know. But look at pop culture. I mean, come on. This is about instant stardom, about money, and it's it's sad to me because I remember when I used to go and see the graduating classes of Yale and NYU. It used to be about they couldn't wait to do theater, yes. and now it's about film. It's about, it's about all of these things that amount to what they see as success. And I think it's very hard because it is so pervasive that you want, their, their, it ha everything has to be an event. And you have to keep your head in 
the process and in what you're making. And I think that's the really tricky thing, is for me, I only know, I trust my instincts. I did it first. I trust my instincts <laughs> about what is good and what is truthful. And if I start thinking about what the New York Times is going to think or what the potential, you know, maybe Daryl Roth will enhance, whatever, suddenly it is, it's subconscious and it starts to skew what you are making. And I, I think that rent was a spectacular thing to have happened, but I know it happened by accident. <coughs> I'm sort of grateful because I'm in this position of having this little place. We're about, we're about giving opportunities to women and celebrating women and producing young women. And I'm looking to the next generation. And it's wonderful for me not to have a rent because I don't have somebody saying, well, what about Broadway? When is it going to go here? At the same time, it's tricky because it's a creative balancing act. It's what, coming back to what Ginny said. Okay, so I want to do this crazy Antigone project, which no one else would touch. <laughs> and I know the reason why I'm doing it is for these women and getting this community together. And it's going to be an interesting evening. Is it ever going to be a well-made play? Absolutely not. But is it going to be, you know, absolutely not. But knowing the goal and saying that's okay. Okay, bringing five writers, five directors, these incredible set designers, and looking at it as, as a unique and organic event was enough. But then I have to say, I have to be creative about where's the little mini benefit that's going to underwrite this. And this is the trick, is how are we as creative people right. being creative about the money? And it's, and it's very, very difficult. But I think uh, the important point you brought up is mission. You, you, you talked about staying steadfast to the Women's Project mission of serving women artists. And I think all of us as nonprofit theater uh, artistic directors um, have, a, have an obligation to stay, to, to, to really creatively um, articulate our, our mission and our vision. And I think that's what keeps us going. I think it's, uh, I, I wouldn't be sidetracked um, by Eduardo th saying that art is uh, fun. It is fun, but I think it's also very strategic. I think there's a lot of planning, commitment. It's all very thought out and, and prepared. So I, I, but I, I, I like the fact that you have a very you know, easier way of dealing with it because, yes, you write plays or you would have gone crazy. The most exciting and that thing that's happened to me as an passion. artistic director is I saw Nalaja's show at the New Works. I knew no one would do it. And I knew that it had something to say. And I said, okay, we're just going to do it because it had something to say. And I have, you know, we didn't make money on it. We made it a little bit of money. But so many young women came up to me and said, young Latino women said, this is the first time I've ever seen myself on stage. And I loved it. And they're, hus they're hustling to get us money from their friends and stuff. I mean, they really <laughs> did love it. They really... Is that the cook? And no, this was Elijah's play. Uh, and they really, uh, Blues for a Great Son, they really connected to it. They really saw themselves in it and are hanging around the theater. You know, when we have a reading, they all show up, you know. And that's, I think, why you want to be in a nonprofit theater, to give these people their voice, <coughs> you know. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, there are a lot of words like community. And, but it's interesting, this thing of mission, because, and, and, uh, what Loretta was saying about process, because I think so much, at least for me, in, in looking at a play, when you're looking to, a, to 
well, what are you looking for? You're looking for the writer's honest voice. You're looking for some sort of truth. And like Eduardo's saying, if you find a certain truth, it's going to reach a certain community. And so part of what we do, too, is try to figure out how to reach that community, how to <coughs> reach out to that community, cultivate the community, which I'm just discovering now, because I used to sit in my office and sort of sequester myself mm. off from not only too much of our <coughs> surrounding community, but too much of the actual audience members who are coming. The more we've started reaching out, the more I'm finding there's, there's support for stuff that is non-traditional. But I, I, I still think it's an interesting balance because the irony of all of this, if we're concentrated on process, is I find sometimes that the commercial producers are tapping my shoulder for the non-traditional stuff. They're, because they're looking downtown, <coughs> they're looking for the stuff that's, you know, hot and new and, and cutting edge, and that, that they're not necessarily always looking to me toward, for something that is, that they would find themselves anyways, because people are going to send them, you know, very straightforward commercial stuff. So it's kind of an interesting <coughs> balancing act with, with all that. But I think we are here to stay committed to process. We are here to stay committed to the truth of what the writers are trying to bring. And... Was it uh, Arthur Miller or some famous playwright said recently that there should be more mediocre theater in New York? And I, it's an odd thing to <laughs> say, but I think what was being what was meant by it is it can't just be a situation where the play is perfect or it's not done, because we have to have opportunities for people yeah. to fail. We we just created a program at, at Atlantic <laughs> where we wanted to bring in new writers that we didn't feel were ready to go in front of the critics and get skewered and then think, I don't want to have a career in playwriting. So we put together this program where we would fully produce their shows, not let critics in, run them for three weeks, and then see, see how they were. And it's been working very nicely so that they get a chance to see their work put up and not be caught in this development hell of just doing endless readings and everything. So we're trying to create opportunities and hopefully from those opportunities will come a blossoming of a full production or a blossoming at least of their of cultivating their their voice and the truth of their voice but I have to say I was lucky that I started writing in the 80s when you could get skewered and part of being a playwright is getting skewered and saying hey I'm a playwright yeah this, yeah. this has no meaning to who I am let's keep going you know I think that that's when you actually really become a writer is it's because it, because if it's, if it's all success, if we're all going for success, then there's no future, you know. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, not any of us here, but unfortunately, a lot of <laughs> the nonprofit theaters that have a lot of money are either completely Eurocentric or only interested in a hit. So I don't understand why they're nonprofit. So, uh, and I think we get, if those people did their job just a little bit better and didn't do just revivals and revivals and revivals or <laughs> English shows and English shows and English shows, that we wouldn't have such a big job. And I think one of the reasons why we have such a big job, because these people that get huge public money are not interested in serving the public. And I think that that's a problem in nonprofit theater that happened like 15 years ago and now it's just a monster all over the country, you know? And so it makes our burden so much bigger. Let really. me ask you a question yeah. for everybody. Yeah. If you didn't have to charge for ticket prices, yeah, yeah. would you just l open your theater up to everyone to see it for free? I mean, if, if generating earned income was not a factor. I would. Why wouldn't you? 
Why wouldn't, wouldn't well, some, you? Some people say that there's, there's an Because investment of the person. There's yeah. the perception yeah. that there's no value, and there is value to our rigor and the miracles that happen on our stage. It's worth something. And also you want to be, you're saying, I'm supporting this by giving your money. <coughs> that's yeah. a very capitalist idea. I mean, you well, know, I mean, there's I lots think, of art I think that, the big you know, question that I think about yeah. a lot is, uh, Well, I'm very, I'm, we're, we're sort of in a negative spiral here, but I, I, uh, I try to find the, the, uh, <laughs> the opportunities and the positive things, and I, I do feel <clears throat> we will survive and we will, we will be here forever, always, because I think as technology becomes more and more a part of our lives um, and, and gives us great opportunities to stay in our houses and to be by ourselves, to put earphones on, to sit in the car, mm -hmm. to sit in the living room. <clears throat> Something that I learned the first performance uh, at the workshop after September 11th, uh, we had a, that first performance, the house was packed. And I stood in the back of the theater. And oddly enough, what happened to me, and this was not intended, it happened and I was able to observe it, I was watching the audience. And the miracle that I saw happening was that there was this group of people who had come to this room with this particular intent to see this play. They didn't know each other. They all sat you know, anonymously together. And they all together collectively were able to be quiet when the lights went down to laugh together at this, these particular moments, to do this at the end. They all followed a series of cues of behavior together, but unconsciously. <clears throat> And I think that experience, that communal experience of unconscious togetherness um, is a vital human thing. Mm -hmm. And We, as we isolate ourselves, we lose those opportunities. Theater presents an immense opportunity for that. Absolutely. The end of the night, as the audience was walking out, so many people walked up to me and said, thank you for doing this. We really needed this. And they said it didn't matter what the play was. We needed to be in this room together. together. And I think that is, our, that is why we're going to survive. And that is, our, that is our argument to make to our community. And I think as much as we talk about earned un in income, enhancement money, all of that about where do we get the resources to do what we believe in, I think what we really need to be thinking about is how do we get our communities, the various communities that we are a part of, to value us and value our work. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean money. It means something deeper, I think. Well, you bring up an interesting idea, which is that it's not just producing a play. You're, you're creating a company, an institution, an ongoing right. community right. that has the ability to fail or to, to right. succeed. But you need to think in terms of long term. You can't think of just, will this play do well or not? Right. Well, my, my earliest aspirations as a child were to be a minister in the Baptist church. How'd that work out for you? <coughs> well, I kind of think yeah. I'm doing it. <laughs> Maybe not so literally. So in a special well, way. Yeah, I, I really do <laughs> think that's what my job is, is that it's an institution that is enduring and that it, it, my job is to make sure that the people that choose to come into my little living room um, have a very fruitful, uh, engaged conversation with some very powerful voices from that stage. Yeah, because I think the misconception, I think Jim's point is well taken, and it's a positive spin on it, which I think people tend not to take the positive spin on it, which is 
people do crave this. I mean, I think people do crave community. They crave it through theater, they crave it through religion, they crave, crave it through many different art forms. But this particular art form is a wonderful art form to bring people together. The question is, how do we expose them to it? And how do we continue to cultivate an attitude of, this is a special thing coming together. And we are going to present uh, writers and actors and designers who have the, the bravery to put the truth out there. Not that they're trying to succumb to what would sell a BMW, but they're trying to actually say what their idea of the human experience is so that together we can, we can come together. So as opposed to competing, we were talking about competing before with the, the quote-unquote reality shows, which are all made up anyways. Um, <laughs> we're, uh, I don't know that we are competing with them. I think what we're trying to say is, no, in fact, go watch them. That's totally fine. What we're presenting is something entirely different. Right. And we think it's somewhat incredible, and that's why we've spent all our many years not making enough money and doing this. But the reason we have is because, I think like Eduardo said, is we're going to fail many times, and that's just any artist's um, journey. But, but it, it's, it's an incredible thing when you succeed in little ways, and that you're doing it together with this live group of people, and it changes every night. It's not like film, where it's on celluloid and it's, it's done. And I think that is underrated. That's why everybody should come to the theater. You know, that's what's exciting about it. Uh, to answer it. her question, which we haven't answered, uh, in uh, a theater that was really, that the government really gave you enough money and it was free, I don't think people don't appreciate it. Uh, theater in Cuba costs 10 cents and it's full all the time and people appreciate it and it speaks to them. Uh, when I was a kid, I went to the, thank God for the Inner City Cultural Center. I don't know how they got me there, but they got me there on a bus, and my family couldn't afford plays. And I saw a Marx Brother play and West Side Story. And thank God, you know, thank God. I mean, you know, I don't know. I would have been a TV repairman. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so, I, so I think that that is also a, a question that I ask myself all the time. Like, I will never make my students at Columbia, who pay so much money to go to Columbia, pay for tickets to go see my place at Intar. You know, I will never, I can't do it, you know, because I want them to see it for free. There's always enough, at least seven seats, and they don't underappreciate it. They appreciate it. You know, they love it. They, 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 uh, all value is not on dollar. You know, uh, there's value, uh, people who understand the value of art understand the value of art. Five cents you know, I didn't make any grosses when they went to Cuba, <laughs> but, but I'm really <laughs> glad they went, you know? Uh, uh, I, I think what we're also talking about is that all of us have benefited from arts and education. You know, I was taken to the theater as a kid because I remember in kindergarten, my mother got this brochure for a children's theater production and the lights went out and I'd never seen anything like it. And I thought, oh my God, there's this world up there of make-believe. And then I was given music lessons for free, choir for free. It was all part of the curriculum. We had a black box theater at my high school, and it was an inner city high school. It was a public school. And I think that is something that the audiences that we're reaching now missed, because there was no arts education. So to go to Jim's point and to Eduardo's, 
I think a lot of what we have to do with audience development is look at it not just as marketing. I think we have to get rid of the word marketing. Yes. I think we have to get rid of words like branding. <coughs> and what we have to think about is audience development. And for some theaters, there may be an audience for every one of your shows. For some theaters, there may be a specific audience for this show and a specific audience for that show. And I think that the effort that we put into marketing or audience development, I have to get myself to change the word. The amount of time one spends on audience development should at least, at least equal the journey that you take with a production. And I often ask people, does your audience development person sit in the production meeting? And they say no. And when I worked years ago at Manhattan Theatre Club, I sat in a production meeting and I thought, why am I sitting in a production meeting? Well, it was so I would understand about the sets and the costume and lighting and be able to interpret what this show is about and be able to reach out to the appropriate audiences. And the shows, when I talk about this with people, it is very interesting. I either get a, wow, what a great idea, or I just can't afford to do that. And I think one of the mistakes that our industry is making is that we're trying to use the old methods for a new age. We can no That's longer respond. That's not just the theater. That's American enterprise. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, we can't count on reviews. Um, I was actually at a meeting where somebody said that an ad agency told them ads no longer sell tickets. And I thought, well, how brave of an ad agency to say that because they're basically putting themselves out of business. <laughs> so I said, well, then why would one take out an ad? They're so expensive. And they said, just for visibility and exposure. And I thought, well, there's a million other ways called word of mouth. What you had with the Latino women coming up to you was word of mouth. And every survey that's ever been done on audience development says the number one thing that works is word of mouth. And if we could find a way to reach the right people to come to rehearsals. You know, the other thing that I once read was that sports writers get to go and watch baseball practice or football practice. They get to go in the locker room. What would happen? And I'm not a director, and I'm not an artistic person, so I can ask this question rather naively. If you opened your rehearsal studios for an hour to people who wanted to come, what would happen? Well, I think you're talking about a synergy with, within the community. I think that that is very, very much alive within, certainly at Pan-Asian, where so many of our works speak to specific diverse Asian communities. Chinese, Japanese, Southeast Asian, and Korean, and, and, and we reflect very often their concerns, their lives, their histories, um, assimilation, immigration. Um, I think their concerns on our stage, that immediately is another factor that to get them really engaged. And they will be engaged beyond just seeing a performance. Right. They're engaged and they will come and volunteer. They will become donors. They will become spokesmen uh, for us, perhaps join the board. So that wonderful uh, living synergy is, is, I think, something that we really prize. And that's certainly another aspect, an extension of what you call, uh, talk about. Uh, but the reason I asked the question about rehearsal is because I've, I suddenly became interested in baseball during the World Series. And I was reading these articles about the way somebody would pitch or the way somebody <clears throat> would catch. And I thought, that sports writer obviously has watched this guy, not just in a game, but in rehearsals. And so I wondered, especially when you're doing developmental new work, <laughs> when you're doing developmental, like if you were doing the Antigone Project and you had let reporters in, I know that's scary, <laughs> to see how you chose these five women, how you chose your cast, 
I wonder if the writing about that piece would change. Well, inevitably, but I think you're using the sports metaphor, and it's interesting because <laughs> the thing about sports and American sports is that there are a million entry points, and I think that it is something that is ingrained in our culture. It's a family thing. It's at the schools. It's an, there, it has been demystified. There's behind the scenes on every front, and so there is something about when little Johnny gets to be five or little Jill gets to be six, they're playing soccer, they're playing football. We don't have that. There isn't a sense of cycling. There isn't a sense of, of understanding. And it's interesting because finally it's, it's about how do we demystify something that is mystical? Because when they come, it is a sacred ritual. But I think that we don't have a sports has a feeder system that is innate. As Pe does television. People will pay. I mean, if if I could get the cost of one Super Bowl ticket, you know what I mean? Unbelievable <laughs> cost for parking, for the tickets, for the food. But they do it because it's part of the American psyche. It's part of their ritual, and it's it's on their cereal box. It's everywhere. We are still thought of, I think, in many ways, as sort of like the opera, like you have to dress up, like it's for people who have only lots of money. And I think there is a lot of work to not only demystify the process and the art, but to talk about it's for everyone. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, when I look at our student matinees, it's sad to say, but they are the most exciting things. It's the most exciting audience because you're watching, for instance, we did this crazy Best of Both Worlds, which was a very loose redreaming of, the, of A Winter's Tale um, in an African-American rhythm and blues setting. To watch a, a culturally diverse, economically diverse group of kids absolutely silent, just in awe of the ritual, and then at other times hooting and hollering, they see their voices, they participate, it's the communal thing. They leave and they will never forget it, but it is about opportunity. How many of these kids, because finally, you talk about these great, these theaters that are getting all this funding, that are doing the European repertory and the revivals and stars, and look at their audiences. They're going to be gone in 20 years. I mean, that's the fact, <laughs> is we have to, it's about cultivation. Yeah. It's cultivating yeah. audiences, yeah. but it is about demystifying, but it's also about how do we get them in to show them that there's nothing else like this. This is a story I always tell and it's a really, and I'll name names. So I was at the, <laughs> last, I was, I was at the Long Wharf Theater doing Once Removed. And there's this side of the Long Wharf that never sells, which is this side right here. <laughs> so one day I went in and I said, uh, I'd like to go to all the Spanish radio stations. And they said, there is no Spanish radio stations here. I said, impossible. Everybody here is Spanish. Uh, <laughs> and so I said, look up the Spanish radio stations. So I went to seven Spanish radio stations. All of a sudden, that side of the Long Wharf that never sells during the week was selling, and the show was a lot more fun. I don't think they ever went to the Spanish radio station again. I don't, so that's a lack of responsibility to the people who actually live in your community. That's all that it is, and wanting to do it the same old way all the time because you don't want to reach out. Well, you raised an interesting question though. You, you know? talked about having twenty-five thousand dollars for marketing, or something, did, yes. uh, and limited human resources right. to do what you do. Yeah. How do you break out of your niche, so to speak? I sit in front of the quick take line and handed out flyers for the last two shows. And in front of Whoopi's show, because I figured that one woman shows people would be interesting. I did it. I mean, how? You just go, you do it. You know, you find the time, you do it. I can't afford to add in <laughs> time. So you should go you on do. more radio shows. You know, I mean, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what you do. You just go out and you go, I really believe in this. You've got to really believe in it. So I'm willing to go to the map because I really believe in this, even though I'm at a point in my life where I really don't have to do this. 
But you've got to believe in the voices and you've got to believe in the actors. You've got to believe in what they're all saying. And then you do anything, uh, you know. I but mean, do you find that there's a, a built-in resistance because uh, it's the perception of what you do? In terms no, of I mean, if, you know, if women's project being it's only for women so men don't show up? Oh, well, that's a whole other story. But, um, it, yes, <laughs> it's really, you would think more men would show up, actually. I will, I, I will take a second to answer. I mean, I think that it's hard because this is completely off track. I mean, some of us were created in the 70s, and it was a very needy time, and there was a need for these special places. But I think, you know, we've had to look at the world and to say, it's a different world, it's 2005, and, and we're really celebrating everybody. There's a kind of point of view that may be at our theater, because I'm there, that may be different, and we are going to give opportunities to women that they wouldn't ordinarily get, but we like men, we work with men, we can't do it without them. So um, it's, this, this ghettoization, I think if you look at some of the places like, I mean, this is a completely different, but I mean, you know, there were a lot of theaters that were very specific, and I find right now that I don't want to be ghettoized. I don't want to be known as the bad women's theater that only did work for women who couldn't work anywhere else. Right. I don't want it. I want nothing. I, you know, we're about rigor. We're about yeah. something that's, yeah. that's fabulous and exciting, and we want to celebrate who we are. Um, but I think getting back to the money, you know, it's staggering because I want the New York Times ad because I want the profile building. I right. want the validation. At the same time, it slays me when I, when I beg, grovel, and get a board member to pay for it, and we get no bounce. And it's a whole new world, though. It's interesting because it is about seed planting, but we did the flyers at TKTS and it worked. Yeah. But we're also looking at the whole electronic world. I mean, email, yeah, most so of great. our marketing right now is about blasts. the most. And it works. Yeah. You know? And I also so. think um, doing more surround events. Um, Woody King had a huge hit this summer called um, Waiting to End Hell, which was a male version of Waiting to Exhale. <laughs> and I went to see it, and I was, first of all, I was blown away by it. I thought it was fabulous. Um, he and I had a three-hour conversation about it at lunch after I saw it. But he had post-performance discussions with uh, a therapist who specialized in marriage counseling. So the lady next to me is on a date with a guy, and she said, thank you so much for bringing me to this. Another lady, as she was leaving, said, this was like a Thanksgiving meal. It just got better and better. And, I was, and Woody's writing the quotes down as I'm telling him. And I said, this po and they were grabbing the flyers for the post-performance discussions because they all knew a woman in a dysfunctional relationship or a man in a dysfunctional relationship, and they were going to pass it on. And this really related to them. I also feel like I have to defend a little bit because we represent 400 theaters. I do think that the larger theaters are reaching out and you know when you have an all-Asian cast of Pacific Overtures on Broadway you cannot look at that and just walk away and say they're doing only European Eurocentric work that was a bold Mid move Stephen Sondheim, I'm but sorry. it's a I'm right but B.D. <laughs> Wong made a point yeah, I was there on yeah, opening yeah, night yeah. when he made this beautiful speech and acknowledged the nine actors who were making their Broadway de debut nine Asian actors making their Broadway debut and he was in tears and it was directed by an, a director from Japan who right. was young. And it's a step, right. you know. I mean, God knows Lincoln Center Theater brought over shows from South Africa. You know, um, Manhattan Theater Club did an all-black version of The Seagull, or was mm. it The Cherry Orchard? I always get the, the check. Seagull. The Seagull. And despite the fact that it was <coughs> not a box office hit, God, no, God bless them, they kept it running. So they are, tr they are starting. And you're right. They were probably late to come to the table. Well, but, but I, I want to be clear about this, though, because we can't... I mean, are we holding, what standard are we holding all these people to? Because it really comes down to mission. Right. 
I mean, we can all have our idea of what theater, quote unquote, should be in the abstract, and it's PC, or it's this, or it's that, or it's representing this. If these theaters are following their mission, power to them, you know? They're following their mission, that's great. This is what they set out to do, this is what's happening. Um, Which I think is just an important thing to bring up, because it's not... Otherwise, then we're all going to look around and saying, well, you're not doing enough women's play. It doesn't seem to be about women to me. If you're following your mission, fantastic. You know, that's, that's great. So I don't want to sort of go out and say, hey, they're not holding themselves to a standard that is... No, and I think they're know, following their to... mission and, at the same time, realizing that the world is changing and that the audience composition of this, uh, the, the demographic composition of the city is changing, saying right. we can be a little braver in our casting. So let's talk about that. How do you people feel about non-traditional casting? Is that something... I mean, I'm sure you must have an opinion about that, Tisa. I think it really depends on the play. It really depends on the work. Mm-hmm. Um, classics, of course, are easier to, 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 to use actors where uh, race and gender is not uh, uh, germane. Um, I think for uh, our productions, that if it is very much centered in a world that we want to um, illuminate... Um, authentically, that uh, certainly if it's about Cambodia, I think that would be, and the characters are all Cambodians, I think it would be very hard to cast any uh, actor who is not Asian um, or can, can portray the, uh, the character. So I think that's a, that's a really slippery slope. Um, and I, I'm not a, a real advocate because I, I think it's, as uh, Neil said, we don't have to be all be all things to right. all people all the time. We can't and we don't want to. We have to remain true to our missions, selective. Um, we have very specific and very different and unique um, artistic uh, 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 concepts and approaches and operating um, styles. So I think it is just simply what the work demands. Well, I think... I think um, <clears throat> It's interesting, in our, in our process <clears throat> of casting, um, in my time doing this, um, what has emerged is uh, that every, almost uh, with the exceptions you, you talk about, where there are specific things, uh, uh, things to be achieved in the script, but in general we start with any, any actors can play these roles, <clears throat> and we bring in actors of all different backgrounds. Yeah. And um, that has happened, and there's often a lot of discussion around that. And I think this is an interesting um, reflection of contemporary life, is that this is where we are, and that we do find with our audiences that we are learning a new etiquette that will become unconscious about when we're supposed to notice the race of a person or not. Um, and it's been very interesting to work with directors from other countries who have different um, ethnic and cultural situations and their perception of American culture. Mm. And for the most part, even the most uh, enlightened and progressive people um, are very retrograde about this issue. Yes, scared about, scared about the implications. Yeah, yes, and, or, and usually, or scared about one, of, of doing the wrong thing or right. being perceived to have been insensitive. And usually it means a lot less because then you get down the process and you've done non-traditional casting, whatever, everything's right. fine. The audience will accept Absolutely. it. You know, but when you're in there, you're like, oh my God, is it a statement we want to make if we put you know, an African-American in that role, an Asian in this, whatever it is, is it, and then you just get up to the people. 
you know, and are they, they're either good actors or not, or they're succeeding or not. That's, you know. I, I think that's one of the exciting things about contemporary theater is that we are in the process of it's inventing itself again. So you think that audiences are more open to experimentation, provocative yes. subject matter, yeah. non-traditional casting? I, even, I think for most people, it's not even an issue. At least in my, that I, where I am. Well, we're lucky. Look at the world we live in. Yeah. You know, it's reflecting it's what, New York. what the streets I mean, look is... like. I mean, this is it. I mean, finally, I hate all the titles, you know, the non Is yeah. that it is about sort of embracing a pool of actors that are extraordinary of all walks of life and who comes to the table with the most skills and the most excitement, it's, it's thrilling. But I think we're stretching audiences, right. but I think it's a lot easier for us here because this is our world. You, you talk about labels, and I wonder if you guys think about this, being called Off-Broadway is always referential to some other community. Do, is that a, a label you don't like to use, or do you, I mean, does it bother you that you're seen as some, somehow different than Broadway, that's always in comparison to? I'm oh. just kind of proud of it. I like yeah. it. I like it. I mean, it, yeah, it's just a little bit bad boy or bad girl, you know? Yeah, which bad I think is, is, is kind well, of good. Well, that's, that's the positive of it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I, I do find it, I struggle with that because it does put, it does put you in a yeah. frame. Right. It does put you in a frame of reference, which, as I said earlier, I'm trying to push us out of. But, but would you rather be, uh, uh, apropos to Tom's question, would you rather be considered a Broadway theater? I would rather be not considered Broadway, off-Broadway. I'd like just to be just your be own, a theater. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, your own thing. Yeah. Um, I, I also have a question in, on this track of um, how theater is, emerge, is changing and emerging. Um, I wonder if either of you, any of you um, have observed, been observing what is happening with language in plays. Um, how, and it, in my mind, it reflects what's ha happening to the language we speak and read and write. <clears throat> that generally plays are becoming shorter. They're either becoming much shorter, they're an hour long to an hour and a half, and people are satisfied with that and feel they get a full communication, or they're epic. <laughs> you know, they're six hours long, yeah. two parts, and, um, and highly rhetorical language. Um, like because people's shorter attention spans? Why do you think? Well, I think, I think it's... Uh, my theory is that we... we uh, uh, in the stories that we're hearing, we have heard many, 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 many stories many, many times uh, in different variations, in books, television. We're just so uh, communicated at that you're, we are ahead, particularly when you read or go to a play from another century. You, know, you feel the weight of people didn't hear so many stories, and they went to the theater to hear a story maybe once that day. They weren't listening to television. They weren't listening to radio. They weren't on the computer. They weren't in the internet. They weren't uh, reading. I read three newspapers and two, three, four magazines a week. I mean, there's a lot that we are taking in. So we, we are educated. Uh, I think plays are about language, again, yeah. which means <laughs> that uh, and both those things are language issues. You know, the both things you said, if you decide that you want to have a play that uh, has a longer span in its language and a play that has a shorter span in its language, I think plays for a long time were trying to be like movies and mm -hmm. had the same rules in the same span of time. And I think plays now are about the language and the soul of the characters, it seems to me, you know. Uh, and I think that's really changed in the last six, seven, eight years. I think, uh, so I don't think 
that the easy, the kind of easy play that takes you easily along, it's going to happen very much anymore because that's what happens in all the other media, you know. Uh, that's what I think. I find that plays are more, that people are willing to accept language a lot more on stage than they used to, you know. I think, you know, it's interesting because you talk about editing yourself subconsciously down to five characters. I've, I have found in the past, you know, more, maybe 10 years, that scripts are more than just smaller. They're just filmic. They're episodic. They cut in late. They cut out early. They, um, that they are really addressing a kind of generation that has been honed culturally by film and television. And for me, I think it helps because when that exciting piece lands on your desk, you recognize it. And I, I do think that we're a place for language, but I think more than that, we're a place for ideas. I mean, I think that television is very character-driven, and I think that film is very visually driven, and God, I'd like it all, but I, I guess I also have found that the ideas have gotten smaller. Mm -hmm. And I think that that may be why so many of us are looking back to the classics and re-dreaming re them, because there were ideas, there were real, well, the real stories issues were bigger. being wrestled The with. stories were bigger, because an, an aspect of 20th century art was minimalism, yes. and a lot of mid-20th century writing in the theater took one little event in a Shakespeare play and made a full-length play out of it, you know, and sort of really delved into it. Well, wait a minute. I know a lot of playwrights that are writing about big ideas, yep. and yeah. they're getting done in Germany and England. Yeah. I know American playwrights that are writing about big ideas that are not getting done by American theaters because their ideas are radical and might insult Certainly the an audience that's going to it. So I, I don't think that that's the case. I actually find that playwrights are writing very political plays and find that they have no place here, so they're going somewhere else to do them. I mean, that's really, you know, and that people are afraid of the big ideas because the big ideas are radical, you know, and uh, that's what I really have found, that, that playwriting switch from like sort of the wordplay sort of like what Eric Overmeyer used mm -hmm. to, to do. It switched about seven years ago, and it became about content, you know, much more. I mean... It's interesting. But people are afraid of content. People just are afraid of content because content is not neat, it's irrational, and it's passionate, and that's scary. And also, it doesn't play well. You know, plays that read well don't play well. Plays are supposed to be done on stage with people talking. And a lot of times I think people forget that, including myself, you know. Uh, and, but and it really depends on the plays we're talking about. I mean, because mm -hmm. I totally agree about the language thing. We did these new adaptations of Ian Esco's The Bald Soprano and The Lesson. Uh -huh. And they played, the, Tina Howe did these adaptations, uh -huh. and they played like gangbusters because it was all about the breakdown of language, people saying all of these absurd words and then what they were doing was just not in sync. And that seemed to me incredibly timely for right now in terms of what I was hearing on the TV versus what was actually <laughs> happening. But also, like you said, very theatrical, very much written for the theater, language, but also thematically had content, had big ideas. Now we can go to political plays and say, well, what's the definition of a big play. What was that David Hare play that was all about the Bush and Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Right. And that's apparently not coming over. It's just a question of how we define this stuff. I mean, 
you know, Loretta's idea of a, a big content play and your idea of a big content play may be different. We may right. decide we want to do something Brechtian and break the fourth wall and preach to the audience or whatever. Or we may decide that something very naturalistic is, is big ideas. The thing that I did want to say, just sort of winding it back around to audiences, is I find we underestimate how smart the audience is. And that comes from this generation of businessmen in Hollywood thinking we need to pander and explain everything to the audience. Where I find if you do a play that is well-written and uh, is truthful and well-produced, the audience, and you treat the audience with respect, the 150 or 500 people out there, you know are going to be as smart or smarter than you. Mm -hmm. And if you treat them with respect, they'll sit up and listen. And if you give them a full meal, they'll appreciate it. If you start pandering to them, then they know early on, oh, this is the kind of meal I'm going to get, and I'll just sit back and be spoon-fed. If you say, no, I'm going to challenge you, and you're going to be entertained by it. Um, we're doing this mammoth play, Romance, right now, which is very irreverent, and it's a farce, and skewers everything. Um, but also doesn't pander, as far as I'm concerned. And the audiences are wanting to listen and, and have, have fun with it. So... It's funny as we talk about it, because I agree, I think we've got something unique about what we're doing in the theater and presenting content and presenting language. But again, I, I, it's hard to define in a, in a general sense. I wrote this what? very slight little play that I thought was a very nice slight little two-character play. I received a letter from a theater saying, well, the first half of the letter was saying how much it was like Strindberg. And I was going, like, Strindberg? Strindberg would roll over dead if you thought this was <laughs> and Maybe you're underestimating Strindberg. Well, but, you know, <laughs> and then I thought, well, you're not going to turn down Strindberg, are you? And in fact, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, yes, they were going to turn down Strindberg. So the first half of the letter had nothing to do with the second half of the letter. And you've been in the business for 22 years, and you go, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> if you think that's the letter you're going to send me. You've got to be really kidding and uh, so so and then from the same theater my colleague Kelly Stewart received a letter saying how great and political her play was so she was assuming but she knew about my letter that it was going to get done and then at the end it said but we're not going to do anything that's this political we're just not going to do it and so so you're saying you're turning down something great you're not even going to do a reading of something great that only has two characters or four characters in it I think that that's what writers that are trying to push the envelope actually feel all the time. I'm wondering, you know? if, as, as working artists, which most of you are, if you find that that changes the way that you treat the artists that you work with in terms of like writing rejection letters or, or dealing with writers or directors? Or no, I hope to talk to everybody that submits the play to me. I mean, I hope, you know, but you find yourself not being able to do it all the time. You know, I, I hope that I can tell. No, you know what? I, 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 the people that I'm not interested in, I've decided that I'm just going to say I'm not interested in you. Uh, good luck somewhere else. Uh, it's just not for me, you know. Uh, <coughs> and, but, and the that's a very honorable thing. You know, and the people that I'm interested in, that's all I ever wanted from anyone was to say, well, you know, actually what it is is we're not interested in you. And that's fine. Then you go to the next door and you go, are you interested in me? Uh, it's the halfway thing of let's not insult you, but we don't want you that I think artists can't handle. Um, uh, I think also what, we're, what you're hearing is this fear of political play comes from the challenge of being a growing institution. And I think it's both a blessing and a curse to have an institution. It's a blessing because you theoretically have payroll and health care and maybe even a retirement plan and a staff. 
But the, net, the downside is you have more people to worry about, not just in your office, but the audience. And I remember reading uh, Stuart Little's book called Enter Joe Papp, and he happened to be following Joe Papp around the year that a chorus line and two gentlemen of Verona, a chorus line was in development, I think, and two gentlemen had just moved. And he talked about how the hallways of the public had changed once a show had moved to Broadway and that the stakes were higher. And it had become, even though before then they had the building, it was an institution, the feel of it was different. And I think it's a real challenge that all of you grapple with. I mean, even a service organization we've grown and we grapple with. And, and um, it is very difficult because art was not meant to be produced on a conveyor belt. It wasn't meant to be um, all things to all people. Right. And uh, it wasn't meant to be something that everybody agreed with. You know, the Greeks used to do it as a form of religion. Um, it was political. And I think people want to see more political plays. You know, I actually do. So do I. So you're going to produce all those plays? I'm going to produce them. That's right. I think a lot of them. <laughs> and you will not have to be on half price. Spanish political plays. Oh, because of your know, mission. Because that's my mission. Be beyond uh, language and um, playwriting um, as the source of, I think that our theaters, I mean, a theatrical production re relies a great deal on the articulation. I mean, we're talking about incorporating direction and design act absolutely can alter uh, a script. I mean, I think I would probably never uh, direct a two-person play that, where people sit on chairs and talk to each other and expound. Be but because I really love the magic and the uh, latitude that we can uh, have with design and direction and music and poetry. And so the articulation <coughs> of how something is, is, is evolved ultimately I think that is so much more, um, and that, that's so much more what defines theater and theatrical production. And part of the way you choose things, I presume, is you see them as a director, you sort of imagine them being vision. Uh, yeah, so, so I mean, I think that sometimes it starts, of course, with uh, words and ideas, but I think ultimately what a successful production in our theaters, I think, try to present is this, this entire world, this magical world that suddenly, you know, you are transported to for two hours or an hour and 15 minutes, but dense, dense yes. an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes. Jenny right. raised an interesting uh, issue before about the idea of building an institution over time and, and the benefits and, and disadvantages that come with that. And I'm curious, especially people on my left here who have been artistic directors for a long time now at their companies, do you feel that there's uh, a, a should there be term limits? I mean, is there, is there, is there a time in, I know the Atlantic, for example, you do have to keep voting on, on <coughs> Yeah, we, I mean, we used to vote every year. Yeah. But I, 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 so that's too hard. I don't think anybody wanted the job for a long time. <laughs> so I think I, for a while, did it by default. Um, uh, and, and now I, I firmly believe that if I'm doing a job, they should throw, uh, doing a bad job, they should throw me out of the job. I really believe that. Because but you I, as an artist, do you feel... God, I've been doing this for 15 years, whatever. I should try something else now. Sometimes, but then recently, maybe Jim and I were talking about this, but I've been having this experience recently of going, if you build the institution correctly, and it's not the institution for the sake of the institution, but it's the institution for the sake of the art, 
it's kind of amazing because then you all of a sudden you start to have just enough money to actually do those things that you desperately wanted to do support the artists and have a team a, an incredible staff of people teachers who are who and, and teachers administrators marketers development people all of whom are committed to this idea this mission so I all of a sudden turned around I don't know in the past year or so and said oh we're kind of there it's not insane on the business side. It should be insane on the art, art side because to create vibrant art it's always <laughs> going to be a little insane. But when it's insane on the business side and you're walking to work and you have no money or if people are going to go on unemployment in the early days, then you just don't know if you can physically survive, you know, and that's really difficult. So there's a part of me now that thinks as long as the institution stays vibrant, great, I want to be there. Um, if it's not vibrant, if it's dead, if it's sort of just serving the people who are running it and not the artists and the work is no good and the audiences are like not showing up because they don't like it, well, I should step down then. And the, maybe the institution should even fold. I didn't mean actually in terms of doing a bad job. I meant in terms of doing a good job and, and thinking. And, and moving. Yeah, and, and there's balance there because I've been doing a little of that of directing other places and, and I may be doing little film stuff here and there. But it's not, it's not for a desire to leave the institution behind. In fact, I think it can be a plus sometimes. Jim and I talked about this. He spends a lot of time traveling. And there's certain things you can do to rejuvenate your art. I've been starting to see it. I don't see enough <coughs> theater. And then I go out and I start to see what other people are doing and I think, what am I doing? This is incredible. So, or, you know, sometimes you see something that's bad, sometimes you see something that's good. But you have to do that. And people, I, th I find that people have to be very careful about getting in their own, sort of propagating their own myths, so to speak. You know, you have to upset the apple cart once in a while. Go out and see what other people are doing because sometimes it's a lot more vibrant and interesting than what you're doing. And it makes you think, wait, what's going on? You know, maybe I should step up. Maybe I should look at this kind of writing. Maybe I should do this or that. So to me, it's a matter of staying vibrant. Um, but yeah, I like moving around and going other places. I think it depends on the type of organization. I mean, um, I guess I'm the only founder, um, founding artistic director. And I, th I, I guess uh, people have asked me about succession, and I suppose I'll just die in the saddle because <laughs> I, I really think that Pan-Asian is such a personal statement for me and how it has evolved and grown and hopefully will continue to evolve. I, I consider it a spiral up rather than peaks and valleys. Um, and I think that that makes a very big difference. I mean, this is, we are very artist-driven uh, artist and, um, and it's so tied into... Um, I think the, the, the kind of um, thinking, the political thinking in the uh, 70s, um, uh, when, when colonialism was just on its last legs. And uh, uh, so I, I think that that's a very personal, I don't think um, I would ever give it up until I collapsed. <laughs> And you guys are, are veterans of the business, but newcomers I, to the... I'm waiting for Jim and, to yeah, speak up. Waiting. I am waiting for the wise one to speak up. Well, you put it in terms of term limits, and I don't approve no, I of meant. term limits politically, in the political arena. Um, I think those are artificial... I meant, per I meant personal term limits. Yeah, well, um, I feel like uh, sort of what, what I feel, that for me, it's extremely personal. Um, and I think that's the only way I can conceive of, of finding the energy to push these things forward. And if you can't connect to that, then it's time to go. Yeah. Um, it's crossed my mind 
that I can see where that point might be for me, which is when I feel like I have done every tap dance I know how to do. I have done every configuration and adjustment and compromise that I can imagine, and I don't know where else they're going to come from. That might be the time to go. I don't feel I'm there yet. But I also feel, um, it is interesting you put it in terms of term limits, that every year we have to go through the season planning process and the budgeting process. And I really feel to me that's like an election campaign. And that <laughs> what we're doing is getting the whole community, the board, the staff, the artists, the audience, everyone to embrace the idea that's expressed in that chunk of the work. And that I feel that's an affirmation of what we're doing. And, um, and, and so therefore, I feel like I'm elected to another term. <clears throat> but I just want, I'm a usual suspect at his theater. And I just wanted to say that every time I've decided to come around, I've never felt so welcomed at a theater or so taken care of. And I don't put anything into his theater. But if whatever I, you know, like about six months ago, I went into the play there that I was acting in and wrote with Carmelita Tropicana. And we were so taken care of. Mm -hmm. And it was so great because it wasn't as if I had been away for four years, six years, whatever. <laughs> and that's what I'm hoping to have in my theater, great. you know. They have a really great kitchen in their rehearsal room. <laughs> and you well, really, and you really sure. feel, you really do feel like you're walking into something that you can walk into. And, and most places for artists aren't like that. And, you know, it doesn't mean that he has to produce one of my plays. It means that when I go there, the work that I'm doing is taken really seriously. And I guess that's all I hope to offer. I'll only be in it for seven years till the place is back on his feet, and then I'll give it to somebody because I'm a playwright. I just want to save the place. That's what I want to do. <laughs> well, we're grateful to all of you for yes, sav saving the places. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I'm here to tell you now that the American Theatre Wing seminars come to you from the Graduate Center of the City of the City University of New York. Uh, thanks to all the people on the panel today, and thank you all for watching. <laughs>